0: This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a Bite Size Bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of Bite Size Bio webinars wherever you are. Our final keynote presentation today is titled Precise High Efficiency Editing of Stem Cells to Probe Human Biology and Model Disease and is being presented by Professor Bill Scans from the Jackson Laboratory for Genomic Medicine. Bill received his BSc and MSc in Microbiology and Immunology from McGill University in Montreal, Canada. In 1992, he was awarded his PhD in Molecular and Medical Genetics from the University of Toronto, where he pioneered gene-trapping technology in mouse embryonic stem cells. In 1997, Bill took up an appointment as an assistant professor at the University of California at Berkeley. From 2003 to 2016, Bill led the mouse developmental genetics and embryonic stem cell mutagenesis teams at the Wellcome Trust Sanger Institute in the United Kingdom, focusing on the generation of a genome-wide collection of conditional knockouts in mouse. He has over 80 peer-reviewed publications and is now based at the Jackson Laboratory for Genomic Medicine in Farmington, Connecticut, as the Director of Cellular Engineering. Bill's laboratory is currently exploiting new genome editing technology to study gene function and model disease in human stem cells. We will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the bottom of your screen, and I'll put them to Bill at the end. So now over to you, Bill, for the presentation.
1: Thank you for the introduction. Today I'll be talking about uh, two technologies, both of which have uh, been awarded Nobel Prizes, which when combined gives us a very powerful platform to understand uh, basic cell biology, early human development in a model cell system. These two technologies include reprogramming, which uh, is used to create uh, stem cells from somatic cells, uh, and the so-called induced pluripotent stem cell, and CRISPR technology, which is uh, we can use for editing the genome of these uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. Now one of the big advantages of induced pluripotent stem cells is that they can be differentiated into virtually any cell type uh, of the human uh, body. Uh, And they can be propagated in culture indefinitely and will maintain a normal diploid karyotype. So these are normal cells, uh, unlike those cells that have been used in the past to address human cell biology and biochemistry, which includes HeLa cells or HEC293 cells. These cells, in contrast, are highly abnormal cells. They don't have a normal genome and so it might be a good time to revisit a lot of the cell biology and biochemistry uh, that we have learned over the past 40 50 years but in a normal cell like a a human induced pluripotent stem cell so the second technology editing um, makes possible uh, the modification of these cells at the genetic level so we can introduce mutations into these cells and the the incredible property of a crispr technology is that one can make biallelic mutations so one can modify both copies of the gene simultaneously with uh, conventional uh, gene editing technologies that were used in mouse embryonic stem cells this was not possible it was only possible to to modify one of the two copies of of the cell in a single round of editing so by combining ipsl with gene editing one can imagine uh, Using these cells uh, to uh, phenotype these cells in a variety of different ways to address different areas of human biology. So we have a vast amount of human biology that can be uh, accessed using human iPS cell technology and genome editing. And so what I want to focus on today is uh, a project that we are currently running, um, which is looking at the effect of single nucleotide variants on uh, neurodegenerative disease. This is the so-called Indy project. So this is an NIH funded project, which is led by Mark Cookson and Michael Ward at the NIH. And the idea is to uh, introduce into a healthy uh, IPS cell line, a normal IPS cell line, mutations that have been associated with neurodegenerative disease, specifically Alzheimer's disease and related dementia. So we can use gene editing to introduce um, mutations or single nucleotide variant mutations uh, that uh, have been found to be associated with these diseases. And then we can also uh, make a number of uh, companion lines that help in terms of the the analysis of what the gene mutations might be doing in uh, differentiated IPSL neurons, glia, and astrocytes so this is a, a relatively large scale program and so it demands high efficiency editing technology in order to carry out these numbers of projects and the guiding principles that that we adhere to for these uh, uh, editing projects um, are as follows so uh, and this is general generally important for any editing project in any cell line is that you want to make sure that the cells that you start with are relatively homogeneous. Uh, and so the first step to any editing project should be subcloning the cell line, and this will reduce genetic heterogeneity in the edited clones. So if you imagine that the cell line uh, contained a variety of different mutations in the background of these cells, and that they're not uh, essentially clonal cell lines, uh, that you will separate out these mutations in individual clones after editing, during the editing process. So. We feel it's really important uh, to subclone the cell line that you're using for genome editing. Uh, A second uh, principle is that we really need to characterize the cell, the IPS cell line that we want to use very carefully. We want to make sure that it has an intact genome, so we will use karyotyping, high density SNP arrays, and even whole genome sequencing to characterize those cells. Um, We're also checking for. mutations in T53, which are often uh, mutated in uh, culture of iPS cells to make sure that they have a uh, normal uh, function of this uh, important gene, genetic pathway. And we want to look at their differentiation potential. So for neurological diseases, we wanna make sure that these can differentiate into a variety of different neural subtypes, which include neurons, astrocytes, and glia. In terms of the edit itself, we want to make sure that we are only making the the mutation that's found in nature in in the human uh, population with no additional changes. So we know that, um, you know, one can introduce silent mutations which may improve editing efficiencies, but the uh, risk is that these mutations could affect the property of the gene transcription of the gene. uh, so, so, some missense mutations, for example, are known to create spice, uh, spice, splicing problems. So, we want to make sure that we make only the, the disease mutation, which uh, in most cases involves just a single nucleotide change. Once we've made those changes, we want to assess the genome of post-edit clones, again, to make sure that these are normal after this uh, editing process. And so, we will look for on-target effects. Care type the cells again. We'll look at their genome by high density SNP arrays. I'll explain what on target effects are in a moment. And finally, as a control for these experiments, once you identify a cell with a phenotype, you'd like to be able to prove that that phenotype is due to the mutation and not something else that's been acquired uh, during the process of editing or culture. So the last step of this process would be to revert the mutation using CRISPR editing tools to control for any off-target or self-acquired mutations. So just to, to drive that point home, we want to be able to fluently engineer both mutants and revert alleles. And so this could be um, uh, visualized by in, uh, by uh, this slide, which shows that initially we'll take uh, wild type cells and introduce the, the mutation using a mutant oligo and a Cas9 uh, RNP. Once we've made that mutation, we want to revert it. So we will then uh, uh, introduce a Cas9 RNP that recognizes the disease allele and wild-type oligo to revert that mutation back to to wild-type sequence. And so in this process, we need to avoid introducing PAM mutations. So we will select uh, guides that do not introduce a PAM mutation in, in in the locus. And finally, if you're interested in any of these um, uh, cell lines that we are de- developing, uh, you can uh, go to this website at the Jackson Laboratory and you will see uh, uh, sets of genes, uh, sets of clones, which include the uh, disease model, which in this case would be SNV over wild type, uh, the revertent of, that, of that, that very cell line, which is the revertent over wild type, and as an additional cell line, We also offer, uh, in this case, the homozygous SNB over SNB cell line. So we'll be adding to this collection uh, over the next year or so uh, to generate a a very large collection of over 150 different uh, disease variants that are associated with Alzheimer's and related dementias. So the choice of the reference IPS cell line project was critical, um, and so we had We uh, looked at uh, eight different IPS cell lines for their properties and uh, looked at their genomes, their differentiation properties. uh, And we settled on one cell line, which is called CULF 2.1J, which is a cell line that uh, I've been working with for many years now. We know that CULF 2 cells uh, are very stable in culture. They can be easily edited. They have a broad differentiation potential. so these cell lines are male. They come from uh, individual of Northern European descent. Uh, this is actually an edited sub, uh, clonal subline that we start with at low passage. And these are factor free, so they've been reprogrammed with factors that are now eliminated from the genome using Sendai virus technology. And most importantly, these cells also have uh, open access to any genomic information that we collect on these cells. So col 2 originally come from Hipsky, which was a uh, Large-scale IPS derivation program at the Welcome Trust Sanger Institute. And um, uh, we've been working with these cells for some time and then we uh, were notified that the cells actually contain a pathogenic variant, um, two pathogenic variants, but one of, of particular interest and concern, which was a pathogenic variant in the ERA2 gene. So this is an uh, deletion. Of 19 bases, which introduces frame shift mutation in one copy of arin 2 And in humans, we know that mutation of arin 2 in a heterozygous state causes uh, intellectual disability. This is the, the so called Coffin Cyrus syndrome. Uh, so we wanted to correct this mutation before we started this project, because obviously we don't want uh, mutations that are in the background of the cell to uh, confound the phenotyping of cells that carry mutations uh, that cause neurodegeneration. So uh, we use CRISPR editing then to correct these cells. Uh, And I'll just point to a a second uh, uh, pathogenic mutation that we did not correct, which we didn't feel was important in neurological diseases, which was a collagen 3A1 mutation. And so that's still uh, in the background of the cells. But I think this is fairly typical of any iPS cell lines that you're going to identify or find spontaneous mutations which have arisen uh, either during the reprogramming, uh, during culture, or even in the starting cells that you, that you uh, start reprogramming. So this is a, 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 dis- a display, uh, a tool that we use to uh, identify guide, guide RNAs. Uh, what I'm showing you here um, is, the, is the region of ARID2 that we corrected. So, you can see that there are uh, tracks that show the variants. Uh, so, the call 2 c 11 and Colf2C112 are the starting parental cell line. And you can uh, see that there's a deletion of this 19 base pair sequence in the middle of this area 2 exon, which we corrected. So, the uh, variants that you see on the call 2one tracks are the variants that are present uh, after sequencing the corrected cell line. So, that mutation is no longer present. But you can also see that we have um, maintained heterozygosity. So we know that there are two copies of the corrected gene in these cells. Uh, So finally, uh, after um, uh, assessing the genome of CULT 2.1 corrected cell lines, the so-called CULT 2.1J cells, we wanted to make sure that they still maintain their differentiation potential, specifically for uh, uh, neuronal cell types. And so we pass these out to a number of labs to uh, compare these cells with the, uh, the cell lines that they're, they're they're generally working with in the lab to make sure that they can differentiate well into a variety of different uh, neural subtypes. And uh, in all cases, these labs have shown that the cult 2 cell lines, called 2.1 cell lines are uh, very good at differentiating into different uh, neural subtypes in culture. Okay, so now to move on to um, the actual editing of these cells, uh, I think everybody is familiar with the fact that Cas9 um, or you've Cas12a, uh, these CRISPRs are RNA uh, programmable RNA uh, programmable nucleases, and so these nucleases will uh, recognize a specific side of the genome and make a double-stranded break. And then that double-stranded break can be repaired by one or two pathways. One is a by non, non, non-homologous end joining or NHEJ. Uh, this is an error-prone process, which gives you um, uh, indels at the site of, uh, of cleavage on one or both, both alleles. And that's been useful for certain uh, kinds of projects where you want to say, mutate the gene, and, um, but we want to be more precise. And so we can do is we can add a donor template, which will then get incorporated at that at that breakpoint and introduce, in, in this case, a single nucleotide variant at that breakpoint. And this is through a process uh, known as small ejected repair. When we started these experiments, we found that about ten percent of unselected cells after nuclear infection carried the uh, single nucleotide variant on one or both copies of the of the gene. So. <clears throat> This was relatively inefficient uh, for a large scale project. So, we spent some time uh, testing different uh, conditions to try to optimize the editing of these uh, IPS cells uh, by homology with the repair. And we turned to a classic uh, BFP GFP assay where we are monitoring homology directed repair through the conversion of BFP to GFP through a single nucleotide change. So, if you change um, a C to a T and a histidine of BFP, you end up with a, a green fluorescent protein, GFP. And, it, and then this gives us a very easy assay to, to measure editing efficiency, both of HDR and NHEJ. And the, the facts uh, sort uh, plot that you see on the right there shows you about the efficiency that we were getting when we started this project, about 10 or 20% HDR uh, was possible at that time so we tested a variety of different conditions and treatments and we found specifically three treatments that really improved H- HDR efficiency uh, and these three uh, conditions are additive so each on their own improve but you combine them and then we improve them in an additive fashion so the three things that we found that ha- really improved uh, HDR efficiency was the use of a small molecule in uh, enhancer of HDR uh, called HDRE. We found cold shock um, also improved efficiency on its own, but in combination with HDRE, improved it even more. And then finally using uh, N-modified uh, single-stranded all donors, donors, uh, which are more stable, in addition to cold shock and HDR, we could really boost the efficiency of HDR to, in this case, about 68% of cells. Um, this work is published, and you can uh, read more about the, the, um, how we do these uh, treatments and the, the methods that we use for editing in this 2019 methods paper. Uh, since then, we've made a few other uh, small uh, modifications to this uh, protocol, um, which uh, I've, I've shown you here on the right. So what we're doing here is we're using a, a Maxa nuclear infection system. We're using uh, high fidelity Cas9 uh, uh, recombinant Cas9 protein. We add in the um, the guide RNA, which is synthesized and provided to us by Synthigo, And we use these N-blocks oligonucleotides um, the uh, from IDT uh, in addition to the treatment of uh, the cells post infection with the HDR enhancer and cold shock. And under these conditions, we could actually see that HDR efficiencies now exceeded about 90% uh, of cells. And what's also really interesting is that we didn't require pre assembly of the Cas9 RNP before nucleofection. So you can just add it all together into the P3 buffer, uh, nucleofect the cells, let them recover, and then we can do the fax uh, sorting or the single cell cloning at that point.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation.
1: So we're not doing anything other than delivering these uh, reagents and culturing these conditions. We, we aren't using any methods to um, uh, select cells or um, uh, uh, enrich the cells that are, that are modified. These are just unselected cells that survive uh, nuclear infection. Um, so to talk a little bit about how we design uh, these projects, I've just shown you one example of the mutation at the APP gene, the A637T mutation, which is a single nucleotide change, which changes um, alanine to, to, to threonine. So we can go to that site using this um, tool, WGE, and identify guides that overlap this site. And, what you'll see here are there's just one guide that has the site, um, which is shown here. And we then inspect the off-target score because we wanna look for uh, guides that have um, few sites that are related in the genome. So the off-target score tells us that there's one site with no uh, base differences, which is this target site. There are no sites with one mismatch, no sites with two mismatches. It, there are, three, there are five sites with three mismatches and four sites in the genome with 87 mismatches. Uh, sorry, uh, 87 sites in the genome with four mismatches. So this is a very good off-target score. And so we tend to uh, use uh, guides which have no matches with one or two mismatches in the genome. So this looks like a good off-target score. Uh, so this is now showing you the sequence of the gene and the, and the guide. So you can see there the guide is highlighted with the PAM sequence on the right. And then we introduce the single uh, base change that converts alanine to 3 e, which is a G to A change. And we uh, synthesize all of the nucleotide with that change. <clears throat> and for these projects, we've been using <clears throat> asymmetric target strand donors, and you can see how those are designed here. Uh, So everything that you need for these experiments, you can buy commercially. Uh, And then we transfect the cells, we perform single cell cloning, and then we do Sanger sequencing. So this is actually a pretty impressive uh, example of what we can produce uh, with this editing, under these editing conditions. So the the change that we're making is in the very first base of the guide. This is outside of the target uh, seed region of the guide. And one would expect that it might be susceptible to cleavage after incorporation. But even with this uh, position, with this overlap it, at the very end of the, of the guide sequence, think, I'm sorry, the very beginning of the guide sequence, we're still able to recover good numbers of heterozygous uh, and homozygous clones for this uh, single base change. So we've developed a high, editing, a high throughput editing workflow that allows us to carry out nuclear infections uh, in parallel. So we use a a uh, 16-well max cuvette to to transfect a small number of cells. Uh, We let those cells uh, recover, and then we freeze those pools. And then we can thaw these pools at will to start single-cell cloning uh, in isolation of, of clonal cell lines that carry the mutation. So for single cell cloning, it's very rudimentary, just played out um, a small number of cells on a 10 centimeter dish. And then we wait for the colonies to appear and then pick colonies. And we then distribute those colonies onto two di- dishes, onto two 96-well plates. Uh, one that we freeze and archive, and the second that we lice uh, for PCR. So we can maintain these cells in culture for a short period of time, and then genotype those uh, clones <coughs> And once we've identified the clones that have the mutation we want, we can thaw them from the matrix plate, expand them uh, for further characterization. I should say that one, one, of, one of the things that might be important um, is to test guides uh, in vitro before uh, selecting the guides for the experiment. So we run a simple in vitro testing of our guides in cases where we have more than one guide that overlaps the mutation. So this shows you that um, the results of, of screening uh, uh, pairs of guides for particular mutations. And uh, the ones that we've chosen are starred. And you can see that in some cases, for example, uh, a, a UBQ gene, uh, there's a guide uh, seven that does not work very well. You see very little cleavage in vitro, whereas the, the second guide, guide four, works quite well to uh, to. Cleave that uh, that uh, fragment of DNA that contains the CRISPR site. So we think it's worthwhile to pre-screen guides and then to choose the guide that's relatively more, most active in the in vitro assay. So when we look at the data that we're getting from these experiments under these optimized conditions, it's uh, it's quite remarkable that we are seeing in many cases, in about two thirds of the experiments, a very large number of homozygous biallelic HDR genes, uh, and very few wild type or heterozygous clones. So under these conditions, for the, the majority of guides, we see very high uh, rates of biallelic HDR. Uh, but the outcome of the experiment is very guide dependent. So on the, on the far left, you can see a guide that gives us a good mixture of heterozygous and homozygous clones. Um, which is uh, in our experiments, a uh, smaller proportion of the uh, of the guides give us uh, this this pattern of editing. On the far right, is that kind of exceptional case where we think that the guide um, that the mutation that we've introduced is actually lethal to the cell. so we do not we do not recover from the zygous clones, so we get high efficiency editing, but we don't recover homozygous clones. So that's just, we suspect that that mutation is actually causing the cell cell lethality in IPS cells. So just to give you uh, more uh, data on these experiments, you can see um, the first set of experiments that we ran gave us a very high number of biallelic events, SNV over SNV, with very few if any heterozygous or wild type clones. So that's quite remarkable. Um, but as we go down the list, you can see that uh, efficiency does drop um, for some of these projects, and when it when it drops below 50%, we start to struggle to get uh, homozygous clones. So as I said, these experiments are guide dependent, uh, depends on their activity relative to other guides. But in most of the cases, as you can see here, we get very high efficiency, uh, approaching 100% efficiency of editing. So this tells us that the delivery of the Cas9 reagents to the cell is extremely efficient with a MAXA uh, to to enable us to get um, almost every cell edited in these experiments. So just to drive home home this point that uh, guides uh, are the wild card in these experiments, that we see variable activity between guides. This is an example of a project that we initially Ran with uh, a guide, uh, a guide that failed. So we find the sg1 guide, um, which has a good off-target score, gave us very, uh, gave us very very little editing. Uh, I think there's just one clone out of the oh, whole 160 that showed METJ. All the rest of these were wild type. So we saw absolutely no editing with this guide. And so we selected a second guide um sg2 and we find with that that guy we start to see uh, good editing good numbers of well um, of heterozygous and homozygous clones and the difference in the guides shown below which is that just offset a little bit uh, the sequences are similar fairly similar but fairly similar in gc rich con- content is similar they're off target score but this, this shows you how uh, dependent these experiments are on the, the, the guide sequence itself. So we've now gone on to start to revert these, uh, uh, these, these mutations back to wild type. And so this shows you the reversion of uh, autosome dominant models that we've created, which are SNB, heterozygous with SNB. And we're gonna revert those to wild types as I explained earlier. And we're, we're getting good efficiency um, reversion of the SNB over wild type mutations using uh, these optimized conditions. You can see the number of wild-type clones that we're getting for most of these projects is very high. And it's also interesting that the efficiency of reversion does not necessarily correlate with the efficiency of the original editing. And I think that, again, emphasizes the point that the the guide sequence itself, even a single base pair uh, difference between guides can affect the efficiency of these editing experiments. But nevertheless, um, we've been very successful in reverting these mutations back to wild-type using a guide that uh, recognizes the uh, mutant uh, uh, copy. Okay, so the high uh, efficiency of editing does create a problem for us, and and that is that if we don't recover heterozygous clones from these experiments, how do we deal with this and so what we needed was a method to help control the zygosity of these experiments and we tried a number of different strategies but the one that ended up working with the best was just to simply add deadcast 9 to these nuclear affections the idea being that deadcast 9 with the guide will recognize the site but it won't uh, cleave that site and so essentially it's protecting one of the two copies from uh, cleavage and uh, and modification Uh, So just by editing, uh, just by adding dCas9, we might be able to shift the outcome away from uh, exclusively homozygous clones to start seeing heterozygous clones. And so this this looked promising in our BFP assay. So you can see that in the BFP assay, with Cas9 alone, we get very high efficiency of HDR of the BFP to GFP. Uh, But when we add dCas9, we can shift the outcome uh, Back to wild type. So we get mostly uh, unedited clones with the addition of DCAS9. So the amount of DCAS9 that you add is critical. And so we uh, show this in uh, a pilot experiment where initially we didn't get any heterozygous clones for this mutation. They were all homozygous. But by adding increasing amounts of DCAS9, you can see a dose response where we start to see uh, more and more heterozygous, and more and more wild type clones after the addition. And so this turn, turns out to be a very useful way to recover heterozygous SNV of a wild type clones in those cases where we get very high uh, RNP activity and exclusively homozygous clones. So we've done this over a number of different projects and trying to titrate the amount that we think will be most useful. So. Um, you can see that in all cases, we can shift the outcomes experiments with the addition of DCAS9. Uh, one to four is too much, you get um, uh, no heterozygous, homozygous clones under these conditions. But if you scale back to one to two and over lower, you start to see more and more heterozygous clones. So, from these results, we actually think that um, a one to 1.5 ratio of DCAS9 to 9 is probably optimal. And so, uh, for the experiments that we Conduct now, we, we basically run them under two different conditions with uh, with, with Cas9 only and with uh, Cas9 plus DCas9, usually at a 1 to 1.5 ratio. And you can see that using from those two infections on the far right, you can see that we get plenty of homozygous clones and heterozygous clones under these two conditions. Okay, so one of the um, really important uh, QC. Uh, assays that we run on these um, is to detect on target effects. So a couple of years ago, uh, Dominique Paquet's lab published a really important paper showing that um, in the case of editing, um, you can lose one of the two copies of the of the target either by uh, deletion or other rearrangements or by this loss of uh, heterozygosity, where the mutation um, <clears throat> breakpoint down to the distal end of the chromosome gets converted, uh, and you see loss of heterozygosity. So these are uh, these are events that we do not want. Uh, so in cases where you think you have a homozygous clone, you might actually have what the, what is known as a hemizygous situation, where you have one copy of the gene intact, the other copy is lost, um, and so we wanted to be sure that when we uh, uh, are looking at a homozygous uh, modification, and that could either be the homozygous SNB over SNB clones, or the revert, uh, which is a wild type of the wild type clone, that we have both copies of the gene present. Mm-hmm. And so we developed uh, LRPCR sequencing where we amplify the region around the target, um, which contains uh, heterozygous SNPs, for the cell line that we work with. This is called two heterozygous SNPs. And then we sequence those SNPs to make sure that they are still heterozygous in those positions. So this gives us um, a very um, rapid assay to determine whether we have on-target effects or not, simply by just saying or sequencing. So this shows you the results uh, for um, a set of homozygous clones for one mutation in LRRK2. Uh, So this has got a homozygous Mutation, G to A change, but we uh, don't know if that has two copies or one copy, intact copy of the target. And by uh, genotyping SNPs on either side of this uh, that are amplified in this amplicon, we can determine that there is indeed loss of heterozygosity uh, in some of these clones. So if you lose heterozygosity to the SNP, that is an indication of an on target effect where the second copy is either deleted or there's an insertion or a translocation or there's been this uh, loss of uh, copy neutral loss of heterozygosity and if you can see from the pattern of loss of the LOH it can affect uh, either side or just one side of the target region Uh, the direction of the change can be in either direction Um, but it's very important that we screen these claws out by this assay. and so when we look at um, lots and lots of homozygous clones from our experiments we actually see uh 7% of the uh, clones carry on target events which is significant uh, but it's also lower than what was originally reported by uh all. so we're fairly satisfied that at least the optimal conditions that we are using is not creating a problem of on target effects at the at the target region we get uh, a reasonably low level of these on-target events. Okay, so we've gone on and looked at um, these post-edited clones, uh, not only by LRPCR, but by array and by G-banding. And the good news is that um, we see very little effect on genome stability in post-edited clones. So 98% of the clones that we've assayed show a normal uh, array uh, result, which means that we're not seeing a significant copy number variant variation in these clones or chromosome abnormalities. We also run uh, G band karyotyping, and so far, all of the clones uh, that we have looked at, including reverted clones, have maintained a normal uh, 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 karyotype. So that's very, very good news. And finally, as a indication of 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 genome stability, we also ran an assay which looks at TP53 activity in post-edited clones using a uh, reporter assay that we developed, which is shown on the right, which has three, 13 TP53 binding sites upstream of the mineral promoter drive M-Cherry. So we can transfect cells uh, and treat them with doxorubicin and, and look at M-Cherry activity as a measure of uh, TP53 pathway. And you can see in all of the uh, clones that we analyzed, which includes the heterozygous, homozygous, and the revertants, they all maintain robust TP53 activity compared, uh, which is shown in red, compared to a control cell line shown in blue, which is mutated for TP53. So all of these results together show us that um, our optimal conditions for editing clones um, is uh, having very little effect or minimal effect on on the genome. So to summarize, uh, what I've talked about uh, is that we have really good methods now to uh, generate precise and uh, precise single nucleotide changes in the genome, uh, which is scalable to, to high throughput. And this has all been made possible by optimizing conditions, which I described, which include cold shock, HDR enhancer, uh, and uh, these N-modified single-strand oligonucleotides. But we've also found that uh, these conditions are useful for uh, other other donors, like plasmid donors. And so I don't have time to talk about it today, but we're using these conditions as well to generate structural variants, specifically deletions of genes. And the introduction of protein tags using uh, plasmid donors. And we're getting very high efficiency results from these experiments as well. So I'll stop there and uh, just uh, acknowledge uh, and, uh, people who have been working on this project with me. So we uh, work in close collaboration with the Cellular Engineering Corps at JAX in Farmington, Connecticut, uh, with Justin McDonough, who runs the, the core service and his staff. We've also hired a number of um, pro, uh, uh, research assistants to help us uh, with the picking uh, and archiving and um, the genotyping of all of these clones. Um, I also have a really uh, very good research scientist in the lab, Gangling, he who's helping with this project and others. And we have had a lot of interaction with uh, IDT over there HDR enhancer and modified olivine and and from which provides us with the, the guides that we use for these experiments. So I'm happy to answer any questions.
0: Uh, thanks, Bill. Uh, that was an excellent presentation. Uh, we have a few questions uh, from the audience. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post it into the question box, and uh, which appears at the bottom of your screen. Uh, so the first question is, um, what other HDR donors have you tried?
1: Yeah, I didn't have time to talk about this, but we've tried uh, all sorts of donors. We've tried um, single-stranded oligonucleotides, we've, uh, short double-stranded um, donors. Uh, we've tried uh, single-stranded DNA that we make ourselves. We've tried megamers you can buy commercially, which are single-stranded templates. We've tried circular uh, single-stranded DNA templates and plasma DNA templates. So for um, small changes in the genome, I think single-stranded, all of those work beautifully, especially these n-modified ones. Um, for larger changes, you require um, larger donors. Um, and we find actually the best donor is a, is, is still plasmid DNA. These other uh, N-block double-stranded DNAs from IDT or the megamer, um, they work, but at, at much lower uh, efficiency. So actually, plasmid donors are very, very efficient in the system uh, to the point where we can get um, high biallelic uh, knock in of let's say fluorescent tag or, or halo tag. Um, so in our mind, um, if you wanna make small changes uh, that fit in an oligonucleotide, that, that, that's, that's the best choice. And for larger changes, we think plasmids are the best choice.
0: Okay, great, thanks. Um, and uh, we have a question from uh, um, Anthony Adamson, who is one of the keynote speakers. Uh, he asked Do you routinely use asymmetric SSODN donors?
1: Yeah, we do. Um, we compared uh, asymmetric donors with symmetric donors, and we varied the length of the donor and so on. And um, uh, we find that the asymmetric donors are slightly better you know, maybe 5% better than symmetric donors, you know, with uh, 100 100 nucleotide donors. I don't think it makes a a big difference, and the strand that you use doesn't make a big difference. So we just started making these asymmetric and stuck with it because they just give you a slightly higher, but not not tremendously higher efficiency.
0: Okay, thanks, Bill. Um, Next question. uh, What if the uh, gRNA does not overlap the mutation?
1: Yeah, this is this is the difficulty. So if you try to introduce a mutation on oligo using a guide that does not overlap the mutation, what happens is um, all of the clones are damaged by NHEJ. So we know that uh, when you transfect Cas9 protein, although it it only lasts for about 24 hours before it's degraded um, within the cell, it's going through many cycles of 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 cutting, repair, cutting. So if you don't block the cutting of the guide. It just continues to, to, to cut, get repaired, cut re- repaired until you've changed the nucleotide sequence so it can no longer cut. So with a, with a non-overlapping guide and an oligonucleotide that contains your mutation, all you get is, are clones that contain the mutation but have also been damaged by NHEJ. So you don't get what you want from those experiments. Uh, so, so the way that most people deal with it is they would introduce the mutation Outside of the guide, and then a mutation in the guide to suppress this recutting that occurs, and that's fine. But you know, for this project, we really wanted to avoid silent mutations because we're not really sure what their impact might be on the gene. Uh, so we did try decast nine the, in these situations, and we have some limited data that suggests that adding decast nine is also useful in preventing recutting once you've incorporated um, the the oligonucleotide by HDR. So in fact. Uh, you can recover uh, mutations with non overlapping guides in the presence of DCAS9. The issue there is that DCAS9 also just reduces overall editing efficiency. So it becomes harder to get homozygous clones. Uh, but I think, you know, with a little optimization, maybe trying uh, different doses of DCAS9, it, it is possible to introduce mutations outside of the guide sequence.
0: Okay, thanks Bill. Um, So the next question, uh, in the first part of your talk, you spoke about how traditional cell lines are are very abnormal and it might be a good time to review what we've learned about the cell biology of iPS cells. Do you think iPS cells should or will replace the use of these traditional cell lines? And if so, how can the scientific community help to move towards this goal? And what are the challenges there?
1: Yeah, I hope they do move away from these highly abnormal uh, immortalized cell lines um i feel passionate about that and i've wondered about that for many years i've tried to get cell biologists interested in stem cells in the past mouse stem cells um also uh have the same properties as ips cells um but the, the i think the the it, the trouble is that you have to um you have to be a little bit more careful when you culture stem cells to avoid them differentiating and dying. So they're a little more finicky to work with than pec 293 cells, for sure. Also, the media that you use is more expensive. Uh, It it contains expensive cytokines and so on. So I think that's also a barrier to using uh, IPS cells is that that it just costs more. Uh, So unfortunately, I think people will still still stick to these really highly abnormal cells, but I would really try to encourage people who want to understand normal biology to switch to, um, of a stem cell
0: right okay uh, just a couple more questions uh, you mentioned screening guides in vitro how do you do that
1: yeah so it's a useful step because you, you you first test the primers that you're going to use for genotyping to amplify the region so that's useful because not all the primers work well uh, so you amplify the region that you're targeting and then you purify that on beads and then you add in you know into these assays maybe 100 nanograms of the Fragment and then, and then recombinant Cas9 and your guide and the, the recombinant Cas9 RNP acts like a restriction enzyme and will cleave at the site uh, that you've targeted to so that you have cleavage products and you just run those on a gel so it's a very simple quick assay and I think it's worthwhile.
0: Great, thanks. Okay, so uh, final question, uh, Bill. Uh, You highlighted that guides are the biggest unknown and that that they have very similar features that can have dramatic differences in editing. Um, Is there any other feature that you've noted that seems to correlate with better efficiency that is not commonly looked at? Or is it just a case of testing different guides?
1: Yeah, so there have been some attempts at trying to identify the uh, um, Highly active guides computationally. So they've taken data sets where they have some data and they've kind of um, uh, de- derived some sort of computational score for guides that they think might be good and those guides that uh, they think might not be good. But we've looked at that score for some of these from some of these um, computational predictions. And while it's true that um, hi- highly active guides, um, do come up with high scores. Um, so high scoring guides do work well. We also find that a lot of low scoring go- guides work equally well. So actually you're throwing out guides. If you use a, these computational prediction programs for, you know, guide activity, you're throwing out guides that are going to work very well. So I don't think we've yet cracked this issue of what makes a guide a highly active guide and what makes a guide a poor guide. Um, I don't, I don't think we know the answer to
0: that. Great. Thanks, Bill. So that brings us to the end of this keynote presentation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listen In series, please see the episode description for links.
1: the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy to access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.